once again, my friends, to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, and you are listening to the first Global Gale podcast of the year 2024. If you're listening to this as the podcast came out, I hope you had a wonderful festive season. I hope you had a relaxing time with family and friends. I hope that those of you who wanted to got back to Ireland to celebrate, and those of you that didn't maybe had a little bit of Ireland with them wherever you find yourself in the world. You are listening to the podcast that is for the 70 million Irish people or people of Irish heritage around the world, and every week we try to give you something a little bit different on that wonderful and wild and uh, extremely diverse community based on the principle that there's no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad. And that's what we're going to be doing in 2024 as well. I can reveal to you now exclusively that we're hoping to do some live shows uh, throughout the year. Uh, There's definitely one coming up in London. We'll have more details on that in the very near future once the contracts are signed. Um, Yeah, and hopefully a little bit further afield as well. You never know. Just talk about a trip to Australia at some point during the European summer or the Australian winter if you will and if we do get to go down there we'll certainly be finding a venue to try to meet as many people as possible and bring you those stories listen before the Christmas break there we had uh, some great crack all together with the Global Gale Awards right we're forever trying to find ways of reaching more Irish people abroad and we thought that the Global Gale Awards and recognising people and organisations in our communities abroad would be a good way to do that and it's also a lovely opportunity Uh, to give people a little bit of credit for the kind of work that they do and for the kind of things that they've achieved abroad, right? There are an awful lot of very high achievers out there. We've had some wonderful books and some brilliant music all made and released in the last year or two. Community organisations, lads, you don't have to look very far to find people who are doing stuff all over the world to help Irish communities. So uh, we came up with five different awards and the show in London is actually partially going to be to do with uh, presenting those awards because I think we had three English-based winners of those awards Freya, the Community Organisation of the Year, and Joe O'Neill, the Person of the Year, who works with the Irish Creative Collective over there. Uh, they're both based there. And of course, Katie McCabe, the Irish Athlete of the Year, the Global Gale Athlete of the Year, she lives there as well. So we're going to try to hold a live event and we'll be inviting all those people and hopefully the Ambassador as well uh, in sometime in the beginning of March there. But as I say, I'll get back to you with more details about that. Uh, this week, we are going to have an interview with one of the other winners, and that was the writer of the Book of the Year, Tyg Hickey. But before we do that, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, there's one thing that I saw on the Derry people there that I'd like to bring to you because uh, if you're from Donegal, you might know somebody who might be of use here, right? So the Cultural Division of Donegal County Council, uh, the Heritage Office, Museum, Archives, Library Service, Regional Cultural Centre, Arts Office, they're all looked after by the Cultural Division of Donegal County Council. And at the moment, they are looking for the experiences of Donegal people in Scotland, right? And that's a fair size of a catchment group, lads. There's plenty of Donegal people who've been to uh, to Scotland to work in that. And they're looking to sort of, you know, to, to record and to report the stories of people in Donegal, or sorry, from Donegal, who went to work in Scotland. So if you have any idea whatsoever... Uh, about a person in your family or about somebody that you know or somebody that maybe is from Donegal moved to Scotland and now works with you in Sydney I don't know please do tell them to get in touch right the email address you're going to need for that is heritage at Donegal Coco for county council dot ie so that's heritage at Donegal Coco C-O-C-O dot ie uh, they're looking for photographs. They're looking for basically anything they, they can get uh, to, so they can scan in in the County Museum in Letterkenny, the archives in Lifford, or the libraries in Derry Beg, Dunglow, Donegal Town, Bundorn, uh, Raffaul, Buncrana, Moville, Milford, and Letterkenny, right? So they're collecting all this information in all these places. So heritage at donegalcoco.ie to get in touch with them and share your experiences or your memories of Donegal people working in Scotland, right? If you want to support this podcast and all the other podcasts I made, I make I make one for the Irish in Sweden called Irish in Sweden. I make another one about media and politics called Arrowman in Stockholm. And of course, the Premier Swedes podcast where I'm trying to interview all the Swedish players that have ever played in the Premier League. It'll be a hard, a hard old job getting a hold of Zlatan, but I'm uh, very much hoping I can do that. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm and pledge a five a month there. That's patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm for a five a month. It'll help me fund all these different events and the various different things that we're trying to do to bring these podcasts 
podcast to people around the world. If you can't afford it, that's grand. Because uh, when I lived abroad, the first time I lived abroad was about 19 when I was living in Greece. And then, of course, when I moved to Sweden at the age of 28, I didn't have a whole lot, lads. Financially, I was fairly busted, right? So I wouldn't have been able to support a podcast like this. But what I would do, if you can't afford to throw in the few, Bob, please share it, right? So if you hear something today in the interview with Ty Kiki, you go, Jesus, yeah, oh, so-and-so would love that in San Francisco. Or maybe it might be your mother back home in Kildare or whoever it happens to be. Fire them off on WhatsApp. Drop it in the group chat for the El Gaelic Football Club back home. You know, say, oh, yeah, I heard this said. Uh, this is worth a listen. You might subscribe to this fella's podcast because it's all about growing the audience and reaching as many of the 70 million Irish people and people of Irish heritage outside of Ireland as we can. Because at some point, lads, we will reach enough people that this thing will just be sustainable. And that's what we're aiming to do here. Myself and Aunt and Molly Breen, who work with me here on the podcast, right? To this week's interview, if you will. So, um, Book of the Year was a fascinating one, right? We had a load of great nominations for Book of the Year. There was any amount of them. The Gilligan Tapes, uh, Dave Rooney's A Journey Through Anxiety there. Dave, of course, uh, you would have heard him speaking about that on the podcast before in Las Vegas, Nevada. But uh, we got several other uh, nominations in. And we ended up having a, a debate there just before Christmas where we decided all of the the eventual winners of the prizes, right? And this one was a big one because uh, it was, in one way, it was kind of unanimous because everybody thought the Tig Hickey's book, which is called A Portrait of a Piss Artist as a Young Man, A Portrait of the Piss Artist as a Young Man, uh, came out on top, right? In one way, it was unanimous because it's just such a brilliantly written book. And in the other, there was a bit of a debate, right? Because Tig is born and reared in Cork and has performed all over the world and has done comedy and appeared in plays appeared in TV in Edinburgh and in London and in Ireland and in Northern Ireland and I think when we told him he got the award he was somewhere in the Middle East so he does have an international dimension to his work as well so there was a huge debate around who was eligible and that kind of thing but as part of the book uh, plays out in London and in Edinburgh when he first went to these places and he talks a lot about his alcoholism and his various addictions and his use of drugs and it's extremely honest the whole book but um, it, because of the fact that an awful lot of that sort of went downhill very quickly when he got to the UK and when he worked over there we thought yeah no this is definitely something for the Irish community abroad right if you don't know who Tyg is Tyg is a sort of a shaven headed fella from Cork uh, who turns up on your social media feed if, you, if I showed you a picture of him now which I can't do because it's a podcast lads but if I showed you a picture of him, you'd recognise him instantly from these comedy sketches and this political satire that he does online he's absolutely brilliant he's very involved at the moment in the whole Palestine issue so he has taken a leading role as a sort of an Irish spokesperson if you like or a spokesperson for Irish people around the whole Palestine issue and, and, and in fact it's actually you know he's doing little enough else at the moment he's dedicating a lot of himself to do that and as he mentions at the end of the interview he's really looking forward to getting back to just in inverted commas being a comedian and an actor but uh, yeah, so once uh, he was delighted, I was absolutely stunned, lads, right? Stunned that the Big Irish Book Awards didn't nominate him or at all, basically. I just couldn't believe it, right? Now, I understand that a lot of these things is down to, you know, who your publisher is and who your PR person is. But Jesus, at some point, you have to look at the quality of the writing of the book and somebody has to hold up their hand and say, okay, there has to have been some sort of a miss here because anybody who read this book, it's just so brilliantly written. Like, the quality of the writing in it is just amazing altogether. And we spoke about that in the book because it didn't really come naturally. You know, he had several midwives and and, uh, mid-husbands there, if you like, in the way of editors who really helped him to write the book but the result was an absolutely incredible read and a very compelling read and as I say I thought that you know Katie McCabe she won Athlete of the Year from the Irish Times and from various others and that was only to be expected but the fact that Tyg didn't even get nominated for anything else I thought that was an absolute travesty so I was delighted that we here at the Global Gale picked out his great work and decided to give him the award for the book for 2023. So here it is Uh, Tyg was back in Cork a couple of days ago and I caught up with him and we had a good old chat about the mechanics of writing the book and what led to it and where he is in his life now i think about eight or nine years after giving up drink and drugs completely this is ty kiki author of a portrait of the piss artist as a young man winner of the global gale award for book of the year for 2023 enjoy The winner, if you don't mind, of the Global Gale Book of the Year for 2023. Ty Hickey, I have to ask you that sporting question. How does it feel? Amazing, man. <laughs> Amazing. I feel like, uh, oh, feck, was it Alan Alan McLaughlin? 
getting the uh, the equaliser against uh, against Northern Ireland in in uh, 1993. That's the way I feel. You know, nobody knew that he was even in the squad. He came on, he chested it down, and got us to the World Cup. That's the way I feel, man. Jesus, I know I'm buzzing. I'm buzzing. It's like- I'm delighted for you. As I say, it is only a small award, but it is a recognition of what we all agreed here in the studio was the best Irish book of last year. Um, could I maybe start by asking you, Tyke? Like, you know, you always hear that thing of everybody has a book in them and most people should leave it there. How did the idea come about for you? Were you approached as a sort of an internet celebrity kind of thing or, or how did it work? Yeah, to be honest, I was approached and... It's, I suppose it's just not not that it's important, but it's interesting to to that that's where it starts. So I didn't kind of go, oh, my God, I got to write this book that goes into detail about my family and my alcoholism. <laughs> like, yeah. I, never intended I would that. like to like, tell everybody all my problems and issues. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it was a it was a process. And it's funny you're asking me this now because I was also explaining it to my brother the other day, you know, because like, you know, like he's massively supportive and he loves me and stuff. But I mean, they would never have chosen that I would have gone into the deep, dark secrets of the family to, to you know, as part of something that I do in my career. So basically, I did a play a few years ago uh, called In One Eye, Out the Other, which was a surreal look at my drinking, I suppose. And that was as far as I wanted to go um, because I, I, I made these kind of surreal images around the drinking. Uh, this guy lives in a house on his own. He drinks cans all day. His mother was an alcoholic. His uncle was an alcoholic. His best friend is a tur- is a turkey who's come to life that he's met at a kind of a, a petting farm. Um, Sonia Sullivan is a cardboard cutout uh, who lives in the attic with E.T. You know, it's all kind of mad stuff. And um, I loved doing that. Uh, but then um, Deirdre from Bonnier Book saw that play and she said she'd had heard me talk about alcoholism a few times on the radio and whatnot. And she said, you should actually write your actual story. That could be powerful if you wrote your actual story. And I was like, oh, my God. I never thought of doing that. So then I attempted to write it and I kept out the juicier of the details in the first draft. And I think she was kind of saying, no, no, this isn't, you know, this isn't it at all. <laughs> like, you know, so in a second draft, I kind of experimented with telling the actual story in the hope that it still would never be published. And then she was like, OK, yeah, this is much more. This is much more like it. So I think because of my own recovery, I know that if you don't tell the truth, uh, you don't have any hope of recovering yourself and you're useless to the person next to you I just decided that where possible I tell the story warts and all and explain to my family as best I could um, some of the stuff that was going to come up That is the deal with the devil when you write an autobiography and especially the kind of autobiography that you wrote because the person you are and what you've been through how difficult was it for you to make that decision and to like, because I think it's a very brave decision, Ty, because you know, you don't come out of the book, you know, with an S on your chest, like well, a superhero in many ways. No, no, no. Um, do you know what? I liked the idea that Bonnie had, which was that like, you do this kind of like stupid face on the front and uh, you would pitch it as if it was kind of like a, a cheery memoir, comedy memoir from a guy that you probably don't know that you pick up at the airport. And actually, when you read it, then in part, it's absolutely harrowing. So I did like that kind of surprising the audience kind of thing. So I was definitely sold on that. But the experience of actually telling the story, it, do you know what? It was it was kind of so therapeutic in a way that that kind of undone a lot of the fears that I had about doing it and the challenges of doing it. Again, because I suppose I'm in recovery. I'm used to digging deep on myself. Um, I'm used to kind of going, yeah, that was completely wrong what I did. That was crazy. I let people down there. That's a shorthand for me. The more difficult, challenging stuff, I think, was uh, writing about family and just trying to get that right. You know, by by far the most challenging thing, because I'm the youngest in my family and I have a relationship with my father and mother who are now passed on that is not the same as my older brothers. You know, my, my eldest brother is 16, 17 years older than me. You know, so I'm trying to write something that's not going to offend somebody else's perception and memory. Mm. And that is by far the most uh, challenging thing to find that balance between this is my story. This is my experience of my parents um, but not trample on somebody else's perspective. And I'm not sure if I got that right, to mm. be honest, because I'm not sure if it's possible to get it absolutely perfect. Mm. Um, but I had to be true to me as well. I suppose I committed to doing it. And if, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it balls out. What are those conversations like in the family, right? So you go to, to your siblings and you say, right, I'm writing this book and I have to write it 
from my perspective. I can't, like, this is the only way I know how to do it. You know that your memory, your recollection, they were left the house, you know, by the time much mm. of this stuff that was going on in your life happened. Uh, did you did you fight with them? Were they angry with you? Were they disgusted with you? Were they happy that you, you were, they, were they, you know, were they sympathetic or empathetic towards how you grew up in that house? I mean, all of the above. All of the above, really. It was I a long you. conversation, but it's only yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'll have a range. So my sister is the closest to me in, in age and she would have had a very similar experience uh, with my mother. So in that case, I was in constant dialogue with her as I was writing it and I was kind of throwing memories at her and she'd say, oh, yeah, I remember that. And this also happened and whatnot. Um, so in my sister's case, I think she sent me a lovely message afterwards when it came out and she'd read it and she said, oh, I just feel kind of glad that this is out now that it's kind of that she felt a little bit healed from it as well now she's more than capable of writing her own book and I think she probably should um, to be honest because there's there's multiple books in my mother but um, my brother's is just a trickier uh, conversation again the love and support is undoubtedly there but it, like they actually had a different mother like they had a different father they really did you know like my mother's um, issues shall we say would have become much more pronounced by the fact uh, by the time that I was coming of age. So they had the, they had a less strange, less insular, less scared uh, mother. So they quite rightly would be you know prone to kind of going, is that it, did that actually happen? Is that the case? Like, am I misrepresenting her in some way? And they wouldn't be calling me a liar, but like maybe I'm being a bit melodramatic about things. And then you have to ask yourself, are you being melodramatic? But like again, recovery has taught me that you kind of like to go into the old Socrates kind of mentality like you kind of have to know yourself in order to get well and I kind of know what went on and what fills me with I think I can sleep at night having done it is that actually as you know having read it it kind of ends up being a little bit of a love letter uh, to my mother in a way and I, I dedicate the book to her and like I come out of the book basically kind of going she was wacky like I'm very wacky and in a wacky way, we loved each other very much. And that's a very moving experience for me. Like, I, I I, mean, I definitely cried a few tears that I didn't expect to cry, like, by the time it was finished, kind of thinking, I love this woman. I didn't realise I actually loved her as much as I do. Because um, when you're younger and you're going through stuff and you've got your stuff and she's got her stuff, it's so much easier to just, to just to hate her and to use anger. That's a really easy, but it's a much more treacherous, but I think uh, fruitful journey to, to kind of go, no, no, she was actually trying her best with the hand that she was dealt, and she was. Mm -hmm. And for all her faults, she loved me. And that's that's an amazing thing to realise at the end of a book that you've written against your will. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, that was the next thing I was going to ask you was about the process itself, because you've written comedy sketches, and you've written films, and you've written stuff for the stage, and you've written so many things, and articles as well in your time, right? How different was the process of writing a book? For me, writing a book has always been, it's like an article, only bigger. You know, it's just like, okay, yeah. it's like 15 articles, one after the other. Did you find that difficult to become a sort of an author? Is it something that scared you when Bonniers handed you that contract and went, here you go, Tig, you got to deliver on this here now? Was that something that, that frightened you in the beginning? Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I'd have a lot of, as the book details, I'd have a lot of... Uh imposter syndrome and I'd have a lot of like who do you think you are kind of working class cork mentality like you know Roy Keane getting barred from from nightclubs kind of mentality <laughs> like uh but yeah oh yeah like it's time to put on your big boy pants and write a book for sure but I would say I would humbly say I feel like there's a difference between a memoir and say a novel like I would still love to write a novel at some point but I don't love it enough I don't love the idea enough to sit down and go through that what I can only imagine would be brutal torture um, a memoir for me anyway was more about am I willing to be honest you know am I willing to sit down and get this stuff out of me and be honest about the stories then obviously you need to put there's creative stuff and you need to put some shape on it but it's really about being honest because I've read many memoirs over the years and it's only very occasionally you'd read one where you feel like okay this guy or this girl right now is being balls honest you know as opposed, I think it's something that you'd said before when we sp spoke before. I've read so many memoirs and I'm half a show going, that's not the guy. That's not the guy at all. You know, that's there's no there's no warts here. Um, and I'm only I'm not not that I'm only interested in warts. But if you're not being true to yourself, there's a guy who helps me a lot in recovery and says, you know, even if somebody's an asshole, like as long as they're being honest, we usually get on. All right. Mm. And, and I really believe that, you know, if somebody's just being true to themselves, 
then they're all right by me. And uh, so that's what I wanted to get ahead, uh, get through in the, the memoir that I wasn't this great guy. Um, I'm maybe not as unlikable as Limmy if you've read Limmy's <laughs> autobiography, <laughs> but uh, but uh, I make mistakes. I made some horrible mistakes and I've confronted them. And I think it's important to put that in the book as opposed, you know, um, you get to the end of writing something and you kind of go, actually, I was right all along. <laughs> I, I don't really like that type of book, you know, so yeah. It's like there's something wrong with the happy ever after in memoirs, like you know, unless you've <laughs> yeah. seen, as you say, the warts and all. Absolutely. How important was the editor in that process, Ty? Because sometimes, as you mentioned there, you know, the first draft, you went, okay, well, you know, you held some things back, and she kind of went, nah, this is not yeah. the guy, you know, and you had to sort of take that on board. Was that a difficult conversation with her? I actually ended up having and this is one of the best things that came out of the Bonnie, I think, for me, was that like there was kind of like multiple editors along the way. So um, there was there was there was people who would guide the actual structure of it, which was hugely important because I, again, with the with the bit of self-knowledge, I'm quite a good guy for ideas and I can be woeful at structure. You know, um, a structure to me is a pain in the ass and it gets in the way of like, oh, I've got this new idea. I've got this new idea, but I don't know where it's supposed to go. Then there was um, editors who would go, you're not being as honest there as you could be. There was a technical editor in the, her name escapes me. There was a kind of a technical editor in the UK that would say, I'm not sure if we'd say that here. Um, will we stick with it and double down on the corkism or will we make it more understandable for UK readers? Because it was initially a UK release because um, it's a UK company, I suppose. So there was all sorts of editors that fitted my infirmities along the way. <laughs> so so that was great. But, um, but I, in my own defense, I would say that I only had one moment where I wasn't being honest enough and I knew it myself and I just needed somebody to almost give me the permission to go and do it and after that then I was I, I went I went all out having said all that um, and I may be repeating myself now it's not a ha happy ever after and um, even the writing of it because you know one of my brothers and uh, one of my brothers hasn't I don't think read it yet um, and if he reads it he may not be totally happy with it and I have to make peace with that. Do you know what I mean? So like I didn't, it wasn't a family. I'm, I don't come from a cozy middle-class family that we have a get together and we share ideas and we we pass around the, the, the talking uh, cushion. And at the end, everyone goes, yeah, we give him a pat on the back. He's a great lad. It's not like that. You know, it's, it's you, sometimes you'd have to just trust your own judgment um, on things. So the editors helped with that, but they can't help you when it's out in the big bad world and not everyone might be 100% happy with uh, with being depicted in the book. <laughs> There's two great moments when you write your first book. And one of them is when you see it on the shelves out in the wild for the first time in Dubray Books in Dublin or in a bookshop yeah. in Cork. And the second less great moment is realizing that everybody's going to read this now <laughs> and they're going to know everything about me. And I've like, this is on the record now forevermore, you know? Exactly. Has there been, apart from within your own family, has there been anybody in your past that has gone, you know, I mean, they could be partners because again, you don't hide any of this, you know? Yeah. I mean, you, you have a child, who's, she's almost 20 now, is she? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, so so uh, like so, it's it's her life as well, Tyg. You know, this is mm. this is her dad coming out with this. All our mates know who you are. You know, yeah, has yeah. it been positive? Has it been negative? You know, now that the book is out in the open. Yeah. Now, to be fair with Quiva, I did have a lot of conversations with her beforehand. Say, look, this is this is what I'm doing. Are you happy for me to use your name? I can use a moniker. I can kind of fictionalize in a little bit or whatever. And um, we had a series of conversations, and she kind of eventually gave me the 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 green the green light. Does she ahead. regret that now, Tyg? <laughs> knowing what's in the book? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think she's like she's probably at an age now as well. Whereas if it was a few years ago, it might have been trickier. And she's kind of at an age now where she's just a little bit more independent herself. And I like to think she might get a little bit of a kick out of it at this point. But she would never let me know that. Like if I've done anything that she that uh, that that might benefit her in some way, she kind of wouldn't really let me know. But um. But no, I actually I actually have to say it's been overwhelmingly positive because I didn't name, you know, say old drinking buddies or girlfriends. I didn't name them, but they would often obviously know themselves that they were in it. So in most cases, like I had one absolutely gorgeous experience recently where I met an ex-girlfriend of mine at a school gate because I was picking up my nephew. And uh, when I saw her, I immediately panicked because I was like, there is at least 10 pages about her in the book. 
<laughs> and I was like, I also haven't seen her in years. Like I haven't potentially, maybe with, with the, uh, the exception of one hello across the road, I haven't spoken to this girl in, in 15, 20 years, like, and uh, she came over and I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You're in the book. I probably should have let you know beforehand. And she's like, no, I'm delighted. I'm delighted. And she said that the, I describe her in the book in a flattering way. And she said, whenever her husband has given her a hassle these days, she refers to the book like and says, look, I'm top totty. <laughs> you know, I'm top totty. It says it here in black and white. So, uh, so in she a bestseller, no less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, no, the, the the and I have one drinking buddy, buddy who came to the launch. I hadn't seen him in years, and I love him. I love him, you know. And I make the point in the book that uh, just because you went drinking with somebody or maybe taking drugs with somebody and you got clean doesn't mean that they were bad or evil. Like life is so much more nuanced than that, and relationships are more nuanced. And uh, again, I wouldn't have seen him for years, and he turned up at the book launch, and uh, it was great to see him. He was having a few, he was having a few drinks before he came in, you know. And it, we were just laughing, like you know, and it's. Uh, no, I think I think hopefully I was affectionate uh, with pretty much everyone, with the exception of myself, really, ultimately, which was, again, the the whole point of writing it, I think. I think it was it was very, very skillfully done because, you know, when you know how the sausage is made, as I do from writing books like this and, and from reading them a lot of the time, you go, oh, Jesus, he did that very well. That ex-girlfriend now, he did that very well indeed. You oh, know? Nice so one. Thank it you. was very skillfully done. I wanted to ask you, Ty, because the audience for this podcast is some people were saying to me, well, Ty lives in Cork. Why, why is he of interest to a global Irish audience? And what stuck out to me was the times that you were in London and the times that you were in Edinburgh and you came across as even more lost than you ever were in Cork when you went to the Edinburgh Festival were you looking for fame were you looking for a place to hide were you looking for a place where nobody would be looking over your shoulder can you remember back to to why you went to these places to perform yeah definitely like I think Edinburgh the particularly the first time in in Edinburgh is where the the drinking and drug taking and the kind of addiction part of myself kind of uh, crystallized for sure. But I went over looking for fame, of course. Yeah, definitely. I'd done one play in Cork, you know, that the, the book hopefully, um you know, illustrates that I had a really low self-esteem, but a massive, like a chaotic ego, like that you couldn't even get your head around. <laughs> I certainly couldn't. And I was in one like pretty small uh, amateur production in Cork and I got in my mind headhunted to do the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with with funding so I went over going this is it like obviously this is the break you know I'm I'm obviously spectacularly talented I the just Cork Robert quite... De Niro now yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah Killian Murphy and uh, Robert De Niro kind of mash up like and then I got got to Edinburgh and I think this is the powerful thing about addiction that I got there I probably was you know a reasonably okay performer like at that age and I was interested in the play and it was a big opportunity. We had a nice slot. Uh, it was on the Royal Mile. It was in a good venue. And uh, I was 20, I think. I turned 20 when I was over there, 19 maybe. And it was a good launch pad, actually, looking back in it. But I got there and I realized, oh, my God, I'm away from home. I don't have my mam. My mam's not here. Like, I don't have to worry about my mam. Um, and I love drinking. Like, so, and then, then I think like two mornings later, I discovered that there's an early house around the corner in Leith and it opens at 4 a.m. I was like, what? Like, this is, a... so as soon as I realized that the, the, the early house opened at that time, I realized probably even then, I don't really care about any of this other stuff. That other stuff is just by the by. I want to just get out of my head. You know, I, I just want to escape whatever, whatever my reality is. Um, so, yeah, so that became a, a it's a perfect experience because it should have been about me trying to launch myself if I was this guy that I set myself up to be, which is this kind of hungry for fame and recognition uh, lad. But I just spent that month just drinking and, and taking drugs and calling in sick for the play and causing absolute carnage and getting lost and going up to Glasgow and smoking crack. And like, yeah, it was just like train spotting, I think, is the way Deirdre described, <laughs> described it. It's like my own train spotting experience, like. For the month and then came back and I remember my sister, I'm not sure if this is in the book, but my sister, who I'm very close to, like seeing me walk in the door, having been in Edinburgh for the month. Like, and I thought I was coming back to a hero's welcome. I'd done the play. We got to the end of it. I packed up, dot the I's, cross the T's. I'm obviously now going on to some major movie with Killian Murphy. Like, um, but I walked in the door and my, my sister had tears in her eyes because I was, I think I was about like 10 stone, like nine or 10 stone. I was gaunt. I hadn't eaten for the month. Um, and I suppose then I didn't realize the full extent of it, but looking back on it, I was like, oh, I have massive addiction issues. Like I'm running away from something because I forgot to eat for the month. 
but I certainly didn't forget to take drugs and, and drink my head off. And the play was a by the by, like, you know, I, I was using the plays of something The the play was an interstitial um, in what was actually a drinking month. Um, yeah. Would you have been open to somebody saying to you, like, the fuck are you doing here? You know, do you need help? What's wrong with you? Would you have listened? Like if somebody who had been working on that play, if somebody in the Irish community had gone to see you in Edinburgh and said, Jesus, you used to be 12, 13 stone, played football and all that kind of thing, you know, would you have, or would you just brush that off and head for the early house anyway? Oh my God. I would have been apps. I would have been fully closed to that. Cause I would have been like, are you joking me? I've only just left Cork. I felt, as I say in the book, I felt that I'd been dealt a very, very tough hand. You know, I had this kind of bizarre matriarch in the house. I'd left her. Um, you know, my dad had recently died. Um, I was over in Edinburgh and I felt as soon as I started drinking, I was like, well, this is my time now. I'm just going to get absolutely wrecked. If somebody had tried to stop me, then I would have attacked them, I'd say, to be honest with you, because it was like, oh, you have a drink problem. No, no, I'm leaving people who have drink problems. Like it would be years and years before I would even countenance the fact that I had a problem. Like I was like ringing in sick for the play losing my shoes and walking up the road with a pair of plastic bags on my feet, holding a case of wine and meeting the director at the house that I lived in. And at no point did I think I had a drink problem. I just thought like, why is she stalking me like and wrecking my buzz? Do you know what I mean? So like, no, no, I, it would have been years. And even at that, that would always have to come from yourself anyway. The idea that you might have a problem. Like, I mean, I talk to people today in their 50s and they would be in as much denial now as I was then. So denial is a hell of a drug, like, um, and it would have been year. Also, I my mental health hadn't started to suffer that bad yet. And that's a big thing. Like, as long as your mental health is all right, ish, and you're drinking a drug and you're enjoying it, there's no way you're going to stop. Why would you? You're bulletproof when you're out of your head, basically. And and, and of course, as you say, you're the, you're the star of the show. You're famous. You know, you're going to be doing all these things. You know, <laughs> you mentioned there the denial is a hell of a drug, right? But there's also a period for many people when they know they can't stop but they know yeah how long did that go on for you when did the realization come as hang on a second this is not right this is not doing me any good when did that come for you i'd say like i think i stopped for so i'm stopped now eight years or so 33 i'd say most yeah my 30s really from 30 on you know i couldn't sell it to myself anymore so you always have these kind of like i was saying to my partner even the other night about something else you know i would constantly have these little dialogues in my head about anything so it could be work stuff or you know we all do it and you kind of weigh up the pros and cons how likely is this to happen and how unlikely is it to happen this would be going on in my head about drink all the time so when you were saying they're like in edinburgh at 19 or 20 the dialogue is it's very quick it's like do, do i have an issue here no no you're having a great time conversation over like by 30, I was kind of going, OK, well, I'm not allowed to see my daughter again now. And I'm living in a house that's falling down in Douglas. I can't work. I'm after being let go by RTE. Um, is there a drink problem here? Yeah, there is. Like, there's definitely some issue because every time I drink, these these things are happening. Then the next conversation is like you accept that you have a drink problem. Next, The next conversation is like, do you, do you countenance a life where you're not drinking, though? And that's the that's the much deeper question, because if you feel like you need drink, uh, particularly drink because kind of drugs were gone now, really, for most of my 30s, it was just drink. Um, can I live a life without drink? Like so for, for a lot, a lot of the way through the 30s, I was thinking, I don't think so. Unfortunately, I just don't think so. I can't imagine it. How am I going to how am I going to assuage uh, the pain? You know, because I get I get bouts of pain of just being alive. And I didn't really understand at that point that I could, you know, go for counseling or do meditation or do other things so the idea of someone to take my painkiller away from me no and as and as you quite rightly point out you know you're an alky you know you've got a serious issue i don't want to be not seeing my daughter i'm obsessed with my daughter i want to be working because i'm still ambitious and i still want to do good work so i don't want any of these repercussions but i can't figure out how to stop drinking and that's hell that is hell one of the things that's hard about these things, Tyg, because there's such a stigma attached to saying, I'm an alcoholic, I'm yeah. a drug addict, I can't cope. And this extends across from addiction to mental health to even asking for help, especially for, for those of us who are men. Um, 
how much of a role did shame play in the way you went about your recovery? Is it something you're glad that you felt? Did you feel shame at all? Can you be kind to yourself now, despite all the things that you've outlined in this book? Shame played a huge part of it. Yeah, it's funny. No one's ever asked, asked me that before on the old book tour. And it's huge. Oh, my God. And it's a dangerous game to play, I think. Um, oh, man, it's a tough one. That That's a tough one, right? I mean... I, in the case of somebody I was trying to bring into recovery recently, not that, you know, I'm a savior or whatever. Someone that I was talking to who was in the outskirts of recovery at the moment, did they feel shame? And sometimes shame can make you feel so low that you get to what they call in recovery anyway, the, the jumping off point. We're either going to go one or two ways. So you may die or you may start your recovery journey. And this is what's so tricky about it. It sometimes is useful to get to that level of pain. That's where I was at, definitely. Like I I stopped drinking for, for good, hopefully, touch wood, when I felt like I was going to die if I didn't. And for me, that that's what I needed. But shame played a huge role in that. I was so ashamed of myself and uh, felt like I was like a shit father and felt like I'd let my family down. And I felt kind of disgusted by myself and being kind of trapped in myself. But having said all that, that was a launch pad for recovery for me. But I'm sure lots of people feel that level of shame and then they take their lives. So I don't know. There's no easy answer to that, really. I, I, I think to move away from the type of societal shame that we have for addicts is absolutely crucial. But some ver maybe shame is not the right word, though. I don't know, man. I'm thinking out loud here. I'm, I'm not quite sure what the answer to, to this is because I needed to feel so bad in myself, I think to actually have that moment of clarity where I kind of go, if I keep going this way, I'm going to get killed or I'm going to take my life. And that seemed to be completely clear to me in, in a way that, that that nothing had ever been so clear. Like that's definitely going to happen if I keep going this way. I don't want to die, so I go this way. What wasn't helpful for me though, I'm, I suppose, was to have this kind of societal shame, both inside and outside the family, that because I couldn't control my drinking, there was kind of something wrong with me, you know, that there was something morally wrong with me. That was not helpful at all. Um, and the very few times in the book, I think that I mentioned something that I don't take full responsibility for. I don't say that's all my fault and all my responsibility is that idea that you get in Ireland, which is the, the biggest conundrum of being an Irish person. I think for me, it's that like, you know, a country that's marinated in alcohol and actually supports the idea of getting wrecked so much, like in its advertising particularly, has no understanding or real meaningful substantive empathy for the alcoholic. It's really great at, at creating alcoholics, I think, and drug addicts, but really shit at understanding them. Um, and I'm not sure what you do about that, to be honest with you, but it's, it's something that's still the case right now in Ireland, I feel. Yeah, it's it is that thing of social consequences. It's I often find it with free speech as well. You know, and I say, okay, if you want to test the the limits of free speech, go call your mother the c word and let me know how you get on. You know, because to some extent, people sort of pointing a finger at you and saying, "Ty, that's not socially acceptable," is one thing. But that leads on to my next question, right? Because you talked there about coming to the jumping off point where it was either I'm going to die or I'm going to go into recovery, right? When you went into recovery, who did you go into recovery for? Did you go into it for yourself? Did you go into it for Kriva? Did you go into it for your future self, your past self? Have you ever asked yourself that question? And what was the answer to it? I have. Actually, that's an easy answer because previous goals at recovery uh, that weren't the real goal, that weren't the proper goal that has ended up being my life now, were always for other people. So it would have been for my ex-partner primarily so that I could get access to seeing Kriva again. So so, so Kriva, I suppose. Um my mother, I knew that I was driving my mother crazy. And as, as much as we had a, a, a weird, awkward relationship, I did love her like and I didn't want to cause her any more distress. And I could see that my drinking was aging her and 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 was going to kill her. Like she was on the verge of getting a heart attack because I'd go missing for days. And I, there was times even up to my late 20s where I was still living in the house with her. You know, I was treating her place like a, like just a shack like that. I'd rock up to like, a you know, like a tenant or whatever. Um, so it was for her another time. There was times where I went into recovery because of ego. Um, you know, I had a big, some big thing with RT or something. I was like, well, I got to get my shit together because I knew even at, at a young age, my drinking was a kind of a disability. Like, you know, and I don't mean that to be disrespectful to people with, with disabilities, but like it really felt like that because I was like, I'm competing with these guys here. 
and like I'm doing okay sober if I start drinking I'm gone I'm down to the bottom of the league table and I'm going to get fired like so so it was like carrying this thing the whole time the last time I went into recovery again touch wood in 2015 it was completely for me it was absolutely staring annihilation in the face and it was like I don't want to die I'm terrified of dying uh, or, or going completely mad you know that and they're one and the same for me like just losing the head completely or getting wet brain or something like that I was like okay that's where I'm headed now and I was absolutely terrified and fear will keep you sober for a while so when I first when I finally threw in the towel I wasn't thinking of I mean this might sound selfish but I wasn't thinking of Quiva or work or my mother or my partner at all I was thinking it was an existential do or die like and I wanted to live I always wanted to live I just wanted the pain to go away it's the most simple of instincts, that survival instinct at the end of the day when you go, this exactly. is fucked up completely, you know. Thankfully, at the time we're talking now, eight plus years or we're coming up on eight years sober and that kind of thing. Um, does that pain still exist anywhere within you? Is it just that you deal with it in a different way now? Because all of these things feed into one another, you know, these mm. th- these sort of senses of inadequacy and that kind of thing. And then you drink and then you go, well, of course I'm shit because I drink and this kind of thing. Have you been able to remove all those things that, that motivated your drinking and your drug taking to begin with? I wouldn't use the word remove um, because that kind of feels like, you know, you're after getting a bit of a kind of a transplant or a kind of a temperament transplant or something like that doesn't happen. Like I still have the same crazy head that I had probably when I was born. But you you come to to learn to kind of understand it, first of all, and love it and kind of see where it's going and not allow it to take over to the point where it suddenly becomes a problem and it's so much of it is about the thinking so like I'll still often have wacky thoughts and now I can laugh at them you know I can often have egotistical thoughts today that are immediately funny to me but before I would take them seriously and I go on a little journey with them kind of going yes I need to go back drinking actually because the people of Cork are falling apart without my contribution like you know from the high stool (laughs) exactly like I used to genuinely think the pubs and clubs and particularly the parties of Cork were kind of missing their kind of messianic leader like if I didn't get back to them at once you know so this is a kind of bullshit like that kind of characterizes the mind of somebody who's like struggling with addiction but but to answer your question like you you find things along the way that really help so like meditation really like transcendental meditation has helped so much I did CBT like almost because like people were just banging on about it so much. And I was like, gosh, look, I'll just try this thing. Like I knew somebody who was doing it and I was like, I'll just try it. Like CBT has been unbelievable for me, like because so much of my issues are in my thinking. So like, you know, you wake up and you have the thought like I'm a piece of shit, actually, like and uh, never amount to anything like, you know, the thought would just flash across your head. And then CBT, it just gives you this kind of workbook outlet for it where you kind of go, okay, write down that thought does this check out? Like, you know, is there any evidence for this? Like, there's actually no evidence for it. All right, Grant, I don't have to believe that thought. So on I go. Like, it sounds so simple. And obviously I'm not doing, you know, the wonder of CBT justice with that kind of reduction, reductionist outlook on it. But for me, like just challenging the thinking before it gets going has been absolutely huge. Um, but the main thing for me is like hanging around with other people in recovery and and doing a program in recovery and doing a lot of soul searching. If you put all those tools together, I have enough to combat the uh, the unpleasant edges of my own thinking and mentality. But they're only edges. Like there's lots of parts of, of the thinking me and the soulful me that I love and I've come to love and I enjoy and I kind of accept myself. But by God, it's been a journey and it's still going. That's the thing. There's no finished, like I'd never ever feel like I've written this book now, so I'm cured and I'm going to go around curing people. That's where I'm definitely going to go back drinking if I, if I get into that mentality, you know? That's the thing. I would hate people to leave this conversation thinking, oh, that's it. Your man's finished. That's all. No, this is every single day that you have oh, to man. deal with these things. And that there was actually, uh, there's a, a soccer goalkeeper, Sharon, that I talked to last year about a similar issue. And she was saying the way she coped with her sort of critical voice was that she would use the voice of Donald Duck in her own head. And that thing of saying your shit, if you say it in Donald Duck's voice, you can't take it seriously. Brilliant. And I just thought it was a brilliant uh, tactic, yeah. you know? Um, the book is out there now. It's called uh, the Port- uh, Portrait of the Piss Artist as a Young Man. Uh, we're hopefully going to be doing a live event, you and me, soon. See me. I'm giving a hostage to fortune here now, Ty. We're going to meet up in Dublin and talk about more of these things. Uh, now that you've done it, right, there are two types of people who've written a book. One who has done it and want, oh, yes, I want more of this. I want more of this. I want to be in the newspaper. I want to write all my thoughts down. And there's other people who go, I am never doing that again. Which field would you be in, do you think? 
I think I probably at the moment would certainly be in field two anyway. <laughs> uh, I have no burning desire to add anything more to. I feel like it's the fit. It's actually the bottom line in talking about my uh, drinking for now, I think. Um, and I'd like to go back to and I am going back to doing more kind of uh, non-addiction related creative uh, outlets. If I write something again, it would be, I would say, something approaching a comedy novel. But again, like I could see myself doing that maybe in 10 or 20 or 30 or 40, 50 years time. <laughs> it's this thing as well. When you're on sort of book tours and that, you mentioned a book tour a little bit earlier on there. It's just like me asking you the same questions all the time. And you just go, oh, jeez. Now, unfortunately, you know, it's maybe the first time that your audience or that particular audience is hearing you say these things. But it is, you kind of have to jump through the hoops entirely. <laughs> have you found professionally, Tyg, that the book and the things that you've said in it, do people treat you differently? And when I say people, I mean RTE, BBC, publishers, bookers, comedy agents. Do they look at you differently now, do you think? I don't think so. I, I think it's, you see, it's hard for me to say because I do a lot of political comedy. Mm. So like, for instance, at the moment there now, I'd be doing a lot of pro-Palestine sketches. So like I have the kind of numbers that uh, people who aren't pro-Palestine would be getting lots of paid partnerships and would be getting offered lots of stuff. Now, I, I never get offered anything like that. So I would imagine that's more to do with the politics than it would be to do with the book. But no, I haven't had a professional, a negative reaction to it professionally. I have to say people overall have been very supportive. I have had mixed interviews through no fault of their own where like, for instance, this interview is very playful and we're talking about serious stuff, but it's, I have had some interviews which feel like an intervention. Um, that's the only thing I have noticed where I'm kind of going, no, no, I'm, I'm through all this shit. Like you don't have to sit with me. And hold my I'm hand grand. Seriously, I'm yeah, grand. No, yeah. yeah. You get a lot of stuff kind of going, so Tide, when we were your lowest, you know, um, that's, and again, that just speaks to a kind of uh, misunderstanding, I think of addiction and, and, and comes back actually to one of the main reasons why I agreed to write it, uh, personally to deal with my own stuff and go on that journey. But I also felt like when Deirdre pitched it to me that if you write this, in your style, uh, people who have no notion of what alcoholism actually is in this country, who are supposedly well-educated and in positions of power, they might read it and they might get some sense of what's actually going on there, which is the, it's a mental illness. You know what I mean? Like it's a bloody mental illness, like, you know, news just in. Uh, and that might aid some understanding of the whole thing. That's one of the reasons why I did it. And I think that actually has happened a little, a little bit. Like I've been in the middle of an interview with somebody and I can feel like they, oh yeah, I get it. I have really bad anxiety as well. I mightn't have treated my anxiety with a load of cans, but I understand the fact that you used to feel like you were in the midst of a panic attack a lot of the way through your childhood. And I think that's brilliant. Like that's an amazing thing to be able to just contribute to that conversation because I don't know about you, but I felt when I was growing up, the alcoholic was over here and the person with a mental health issue was over here. We probably need to get them to hospital and lock away the key with the alcoholic. We'll just kick him in the corner. Um, you know, he the thing in the corner is a friend of mine in recovery says he used to be re referred to when he was drinking to mind the thing in the corner. <laughs> you know, so it's even got Halloween kind of horror <laughs> kind of imagery. <laughs> like, well, it's, but, it's uh, kind of like Steve O'Timothy up in Galway says, "It's like I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just fond of a few drinks kind of thing." You know? Yeah, exactly. We have this, yeah. we have this whole language about it that, like you say, sometimes it's almost playful. Yeah. But, ah, yeah, don't mind your man. Like you know, he's been there. But but there's never yeah. any sort of you know offer of as you say, it's not recognised as being a mental health thing you know no, um, no. Tyke, I really appreciate the time that you've taken to talk about this and indeed your honesty oh, both in this pleasure. conversation and in the book is that chapter over now or is there a risk that you're going to become the guy who can speak eloquently and wrote a brilliant book about being an alcoholic you know can you sort of go okay can I be an actor slash writer slash comedian again now do you think that's going to work or is this something that's always going to be part of what you're asked about in interviews like this I, I don't mind being asked about it because the way I look at it is like, again, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to aid that understanding. But importantly as well, it's not just me finding out my stuff about me. There are other people who have already gotten on to me. And thankfully, a lot of people who said that they weren't quite ready to go to meetings yet, but they read the book and they might now kind of do something about it. Now, I'm not saying AA has the monopoly on it that you can get recovery in all sorts of ways, but just might be a, a route for somebody who's struggling or say if you're young and you feel like your life is over and you're never going to do anything now because you can't drink, which is the way that I think sometimes advertising feels a bit like that in Ireland, that if you're not drinking, you're out of the gang kind of thing. And you're Hopefully, deeply unattractive as well. You know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. You're never going to have an, an intimate moment with your, uh, an intimate romantic moment again, either like, but, uh, but yeah, so I wrote, I partly wrote it so that people would get something out of it. Um, they might feel like they're struggling with addiction or they know somebody who's struggling with addiction. 
So I will never not want to talk about it if someone wants to talk about it. But yeah, you're right. I would like to, that that would be my bottom line on the recovery thing. I don't want to be become a recovery influencer and like all my stuff is about recovery, you know, and stuff like that. No disrespect to anybody who's doing that. But uh, I just wanted to say this, this was my utterance on it. And it said no, and I go back to hopefully doing political satire, which is where I kind of see myself ultimately uh, progressing. It's an absolutely brilliant book, A Portrait of the Piss Artist as a Young Man. It will soon be available on Tyg Hickey's website. And indeed, we'll get together in Dublin or Cork or somewhere soon enough and talk about it. But for now, Tyg Hickey, winner of the Global Gale Book of the Year for 2023. Thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you so much, buddy. Absolute pleasure. There you go. That was indeed the wonderful Tyg Hickey. If you're listening to this in podcast form, you'll be getting all this chat with me around it. But it's also, the interview itself is also over on YouTube if you'd like to see the chat between the two of us. Very grateful to Tyg for taking the time. And I'm delighted about how delighted he was to be asked to come on the podcast and indeed to receive the award. And uh, Tyg is also one of those people that we might do a Global Gale show uh, live in Dublin at some point in the near future as well. And if we do, we are going to invite him to, uh, to come along with his books and uh, we'll have a similar conversation, but hopefully more focusing on what he's doing around about that time. And uh, we'll get away from the book and Palestine and everything else that's happened. Hopefully that uh, situation will be sorted out in the very near future. Right, that is all for this uh, first podcast of 2024. Please do get in touch, right? You'll find me at Philip Ablana on Instagram. You may have seen, seen this post on LinkedIn. You can contact me there. You might have seen it on Facebook. You might have seen it on WhatsApp. You know, just get in touch. If there's if you have a story for me, if there's anything you'd like to tell me if there's somebody you'd like me to interview and there's a lot of interesting suggestions coming up a few of which I've already booked for this year which is great crack altogether uh, next week we're going to be talking to uh, one of the most amazing Irish people I know is a lad called Mark O'Sullivan, right? Mark is a Grammy Award winning record producer, a former footballer for Cork City, uh, a doctor of, 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 let me see, what is he, a doctor of skill acquisition, or he's associate professor of football at the, the School of Sports Science in Oslo. An amazing character altogether. But uh, he was appointed, as I say, he got his, doctor, his doctorate from uh, Sheffield Hallam University there just before Christmas. And I said I would bring him on the Global Gale podcast because January is the time of the year when we're all talking about sport and oh, maybe I'll give the old junior B football or the camogie another go this year and that kind of thing so I thought Mark would be a fascinating person to get on to talk about how we learn and how we improve and how we get involved in sports as adults and what we should be doing for our children right because obviously it's a hugely important subject uh, both for the Irish around the globe because we play ice hockey and we play Aussie rules football and we play our own Gaelic games and that but we also want to pass these things on to our children and I find Mark a fascinating guy to talk to uh, and a very helpful guy to talk to when uh, when we talk about you know how to teach them how to play hurling or Gaelic football how do we create an environment for them to enjoy those games and to learn and that's really a conversation I'm looking forward to bringing you that will be next week's show this has been this week's show don't forget to share it if you can visit Arrowman in Stockholm patreon.com Arrowman in Stockholm and support with a fiver a month please let that be the year you do it lads because the more fivers a month we can get in here the easier it's going to be for me to keep producing this content for you as a member of the 70 million Irish diaspora around the world until next week my friends look after you as ourselves look after one another and i'll be back again very soon with another episode of the global gale podcast good luck mm -hmm.